Well, good morning. Take your Bibles and turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 3. We'll get there shortly, but there are some things that we need to address as we move forward here as a ministry concerning much of the confusion that takes place here in our culture over mixed messages and media. And so, what lies ahead for First Baptist Church in Johnson City. What adjustments need to be made? What adjustments will we make in addressing this pandemic and uh, the protection of our people and uh, the path forward? Well, that's a good question. Some of you since last week were waiting with bated breath, others with poisoned arrows, so we're just going to get to it right now. There's grave mixed messages in our culture today. And it's a really difficult thing to measure what we've been studying over the course of the last six or eight weeks about submission to the authorities over you when all of the authorities are speaking a different language. There doesn't seem to be any coherence or consistency in the message that is offered toward us. And even now, if you've been paying attention, science is no longer what guides us, it's become the enemy which just reveals the political nature of the things that we're dealing with. For instance, the Center for Disease Control and the head of that under the body administration, Dr. Rochelle Walensky, speaking in the end of March about the impending doom of this spring and the COVID explosion a week before the mask announcement. Uh, it was too dangerous to send her son to a camp, and one day, before the mask announcement, she was defending masks before a congressional hearing. So, what's the truth? What, who do we follow? Who do we listen to? And I know some of you are struggling with that. So Dr. Anthony Fauci, the spokesman for the Biden administration, hasn't been any more clear and probably less clear in much of what he's communicated in this. He has spoken from time to time, about those who have uh, lived through or experienced and are now recovered from the COVID uh, virus and the natural immunities that come from that, but you have very little in our culture talking about that natural immunity. So as we go back from the beginning and talk about reasonable compliance with biblical fidelity, how do we submit to those uh, ruling authorities? Which ones do we submit to when there's a cacophony of voices? Uh, is it reasonable to jump through all of the hoops constructed for us? And I think that we've come to a point in time where we have to start championing the sanctity of personal responsibility. Political opportunity is being seized. Um, political power is being seized. Isn't it crazy in New York State even probably, um, no offense to anyone here, the most disastrous state in terms of death and mismanagement of this whole COVID pandemic. We've allowed now adults to go without masks, but in the same kind of executive order, we're making children two, three, and four years old in childcare wear masks now. There's no scientific evidence. It's just foolishness. A word of warning. This is outside of my announcement, so if you get angry at this, don't get angry at the announcement, please. This is part of this whole Marxist cradle to the grave where the government is seizing control over the family. Don't give them control, parents. You have a responsibility for your children. You will answer to God, not these politicians. I am gravely concerned at some of the things happening in families in particular and what I consider to be bribes that are coming by way of the federal government and checks that are being distributed. Okay, let's put that aside a little bit. Let's be parents and take control of the lives of our children. You do what you believe is right for your children, and then deal with the consequences of that. So here's what we're doing. Johnson City, First Baptist Johnson City will follow the no mask guidance for those who have been vaccinated. If you choose not to wear a mask, we will honor that choice and selection. Number two, First Baptist Church in Johnson City will also make allowance for those who have had the virus 
and have natural immunity. I don't know about you. I have more confidence in the God-given body that I have and its natural immunity response than I do with the confusion in the medical community today. Most recent study, by the way, said that if you've had COVID, you're probably covered up to eight or nine months. That changed from one month to three months to four to five months, now to eight months. And we say, well, why is the change? Why is that any different? Well, here's the change. Pay close attention. You've got to use your brain. But they've only been tracking this for eight months. Of course, that's why they can only say eight months. You might be immune for eight years. We, we don't know that. But God's made our bodies in a purposeful way. Remember when you were a child, when, when I was a child? You know, oh, the mumps and the measles and chicken pox. What was the best way to deal with that? Get them and live through it, right? And then you had the natural immunity. I encourage you to give some consideration to that. And if for some reason you can't ma- wear a mask for, for other reasons, whether it be health or uh, even emotional reasons, there's always been a carve-out from the beginning of this pandemic that you would be exempt from wearing those masks. The same will be true here. Along with that, First Baptist Church will ask all of its members and attenders to respect the sanctity of personal responsibility and spend your time um, taking great concern for your own choices and not being so consumed by the choices of others. There are no mask or vaccine or political um, screenings that are going to take place here at First Baptist. Well, I can't say that. They might take place. Pay no attention to them. We're going to champion the sanctity of personal responsibility. Funny how in the military we can have a policy, don't ask, don't tell, but not with vaccines. This is how crazy our world has become today. But if, in fact, you're concerned, listen, I… I acknowledge that some are truly fearful. I want to encourage you to consider to get the vaccine if, if that takes away some of that fear. But it's on, it's on you. It's not on the rest of us. Fourthly, First Baptist Church in Johnson City asks that respect be shown toward each other in all circumstances, whatever your choices may. Here's what I want you to do. If you go up to someone who's wearing a mask, put a mask on. It's pretty simple. Uh-uh, honor them. Don't, don't get in their space. Don't make this about you. See, personal responsibility doesn't make the world revolve around you. It just makes you responsible for your choices. And if someone has a mask, it's probably the best thing that we do is we put in a mask and we go up to them so that we don't compromise them and their personal choice. They have just as much freedom as you to wear that mask. Also, again, don't ask, don't tell. Here's the truth of the matter. We know that some still struggle with these new guidelines, and none of this is new. It's all according to the science. But because some still struggle, starting next week, we'll designate certain sections in the worship center that will still have the tape over the seats and will still allow you to wear your mask in and sit down in your seat and your mask out. We will still make room for you. We don't want to exclude anybody here. So it's a matter of personal responsibility moving forward. And if you have a mask on and want social distancing, you look for those sections that still has tape across that and and, and makes that social distancing possible. We want to make room for everybody here at First Baptist and honor your sanctity of personal responsibility. And finally, First Baptist in Johnson City will continue to monitor the COVID-19 concerns and make any necessary adjustments accordingly. Those adjustments need to be made immediately in the middle of the week. We will use social media and email for timely updates and announcements. So, in the end of the day, a little sense of normalcy is returning, not just to our world, but to First Baptist Church in Johnson City. And let me add this caveat for some who want to stand and cheer. I wouldn't redo or undo anything we've done from the beginning. We made the best decisions based on the available information. And I thank God that there's not been any transmitted cases tied to First Baptist Church in Johnson City. Thank God for His goodness to us. And at the end of the day, 
in the end of the day, isn't that where our trust should have been all along? <laughs> and the God who keeps us for His glory. Everyone will give an account of every idle word. And as we move forward, we will do the best we can to address the concerns of the human heart and mind and bring some clarity, if at all possible, to the cacophony of voices, all speaking different things in an ever-changing culture, and to God be the glory. As for First Baptist moving forward, we're not going to change one whit. We will continue to preach the gospel. Take your Bibles, please, and turn to First Peter chapter 3. Peter writes, for Christ also suffered once for sin, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which He went to proclaim to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels and authorities and powers having been subjected to Him. We will begin today where we really began or addressed last week. This section contains some of the most difficult exegetical problems in the New Testament. There are 18 primary views of the interpretation of this text. R.C. Sproul is right. That means whatever view you hold is in the minority of those views, so we will hold them loosely. And what we won't let happen is that we lose the real intent and teaching of this passage within the context of Peter's letter towards those who were going through really difficult and challenging times, similar to the times in which we face today. You know, we're in a battle. We would like to define that battle as being in a battle with each other, but that is not the battle. We are in a battle with the forces of darkness, the cosmic clash between good and evil, God and the rejection of God. And we're encouraged in Ephesians chapter 6 to finally be strong in the Lord and in His strength and the strength of His might, and to put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers authorities and against the cosmic powers over this present darkness. We wrestle against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places, and we fight a good fight, knowing that no matter how much we might be persecuted, no matter how much the culture might stand in opposition, no matter how strong a foothold might have in the culture in which we live, there is a promise in Scripture that we win through the blood of Jesus Christ, and everything is going to be okay. I don't know how you live in a world like this without believing that eternal truth that everything's going to be okay. Some interesting things happening in our world today. A cry for peace in the Middle East, even so, come Lord. Jesus. If you want to know how those pieces fit, join us for ABF. One last announcement before we jump into our message. Uh, Lori and I will be joining uh, the high schoolers in the refinery in July and August. We're going to kind of take the reins of that uh, summer ministry, uh, plan some activities with them and teach them. If you don't want your children indoctrinated on the things that matter most, don't send them to youth group. But if you want… If you want them to be helping to get navigating this crazy world, tell them to come to, to Sunday school. I'm going to show them the hope that we have in Jesus Christ and the belief that everything's going to be okay. I believe it with all of my heart. Everything's going to be okay. Father, I pray that you would bless us as we spend some time in your word this morning. We thank you for the text and the ability to address it at least in part last week. We pray that You'd give us clarity and things that need to be clear and hang on loosely. 
when we need to hang on loosely, especially into those matters that aren't necessarily clear within the text and Scripture itself. I pray that you'd give us a sense of undying unity and oneness, regardless of where one might stand on vaccines and the mask and the madness, that we would show the due respect toward each other that is called for as members of your body for your glory. I pray that as we champion the sanctity of personal responsibility that we all might know that each one of us will give an account, and we won't answer for somebody else. We'll only answer for us. May we be fully persuaded in our own minds. May we live soberly and righteous in this present age. May we do what we've been called to do, living as salt and light. May we submit to the authorities even when there's grave confusion about who's in charge. But remind us today in the text that there's only one in charge, and it's our Savior, Jesus Christ. Draw our attention to Him today as we study the text, and to Him alone we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Again, back in verse 18, for Christ also suffered once for sins. Again, we reminded you last week that as Christ died for the sins of all mankind, as He suffered and paid the penalty for all of our sinful choices, it only had to be a one-time sacrifice. And it was because of His righteousness, because of His faithfulness, according to the text, and our unrighteousness, that we are able to come to God, that He brings us to God through His death, burial, and resurrection in the flesh, made alive in the Spirit. That is so chock full of deep theology, but make no mistake about it, for those who are children of Jesus Christ, children of the King, nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus, not one single thing. For if indeed something could separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus, His dying for sin once was not enough which would mean he would have to die a second time for you. I have great news. He only needed to die once. It was finished. It was over. And when he secures us through his death, burial, and resurrection, when he makes us alive in his spirit, meaning that Holy Spirit, when he brings us into newness of life, even though the body decays, we are guaranteed of a better day and the reality that nothing can pluck us out of our Father's hand, not one single thing. He died once for all, righteous for the unrighteous, for our sake. He, meaning God, made Him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him, meaning Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God, imputed to Christ Himself, the sinless one, the sins of all mankind, placed in His account, and He paid that account in full. And He took His righteousness, a perfect, beautiful righteousness, and He imputed that to our account, an imputed kind of righteousness, not an earned righteousness, not a works righteousness, but an imputed kind of righteousness, even though we still had sin in the flesh, and He clothed us and the garments of His righteousness, and we stand before our God righteous, yet in many ways still wretched in the decisions that we make, but righteous because of what Jesus Christ has done. He imputed our sins, credited them to His account, and paid that in full. He imputed His righteousness to us in spite of our failures, in spite of our still battle and struggle with this flesh, in spite of doing the things we don't want to do and not doing the things that we do. We are clothed in the righteousness of God because He is righteous and we are unrighteous, and He is taking care of that once for all. That's a really important text, once for all. In which, verse 19, He went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. This is where the original language becomes somewhat difficult as we wrestle with the truth of the text. The lack of clarity in our understanding of the next several verses, a couple of things in particular, 
And as we wade through that, we have to make sense of, okay, what is Peter trying to do? What, what, what is he doing by way of illustration? What is he trying to teach us in this text? Well, there can be no mistake that the Bible in verse 19 says he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. So, we know that he went somewhere and proclaimed something. But what we don't know is where he went, when he went there, and what is it that he said that's only implied within the text. We have to go to the rest of the Scripture to try and figure that out. But he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. I particularly hold to this view that after the resurrection prior to the ascension, he claimed absolute victory over those evil spirits and and, and fallen angels in our world today. He proclaimed what He proclaimed on the cross, that it is finished, and and that He wins. It hasn't stopped the war, and it hasn't stopped the battle. But remember the context of submission, so keep that in the back of your mind as we work down through this text. And He went somewhere and proclaimed something to the spirits in prison. Who are these spirits in prison? This is where all of these 18 different views, and probably even more, some of them are nuanced, come, come into play trying to identify the spirits in prison. Now, I think it's a mistake for us to just totally ignore it because it's in the text. But equally, I think it's a mistake to speak dogmatically at this, saying that, thinking somehow that we have some special Gnostic kind of knowledge, and we know exactly what it is when people far brighter and far greater than I in their capacity theologically don't really understand the text and disagree with each other. So, we can't just ignore it. It's the beauty of expository kind of preaching through books, Uh, but we can't spend all of our time here and get bogged down in the details of something that, uh, quite frankly, will divide us and we'll never really come to to, to, to any kind of consensus on. So, when it comes to proclaiming to the spirits in prison, we have to take some cues from the next verse. So, he ties that because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah. So, he's talking about a particular time in history, the days of Noah, and proclaiming to certain spirits and tying it to those days of Noah. And it may give us some hint or indication as to what body he was proclaiming a message to. Because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through the water. He proclaimed and announced that the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ is enough. It was a once-for-all kind of suffering. It was over then. And that righteousness and message was rooted solely in His finished work, the righteous for the unrighteous. There is only one way to, to God, and that is through Jesus Christ, and He might bring us, verse 18, to God as a result of His atoning work, His paying the penalty for the sins of all mankind. So, He descends, it seems, into some kind of holding place or restricted area to preach a message, to proclaim a a message of good news to someone. Who is that someone? Now, the majority of the minority views all factor in a passage of Scripture that Peter really kind of hones in on in this text. That passage of Scripture is Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. If you turn there, please. So, Peter is using this uh, narrative example in Scripture to make a point in 1 Peter. The point to us isn't as clear as we would like it to be, but because he talked about the spirits and because he talked about the days of Noah and because he talked about the consequences and uh, the punishment for uh, those uh, disobedient uh, spirits, entities in in that time frame of Noah, we go to, to Genesis chapter 6. With the increasing corruption on the earth, we read this narrative. It's amazing how quickly after Genesis chapter 3, we see the world spiraling into a, a, almost a worst-case scenario. That is the depravity of man and the extent of sins separating us from, from the God who created us. When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, The sons of God saw that the daughters daughters of man were attractive, and they took them as their wives, any they chose. 
And the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for his flesh, his days will be 120 years. And the Nephilim were on the earth in those days, who also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man and bore children to them, these, mi- these were the mighty men of, who were of old, the men of renown. And the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. This spiraled to the worst-case situation, and the Lord repented or was sorry that he'd made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. He was grieved at the extent of sin on the earth prior to the pronouncement of judgment that came through what we know to be the historic flood of Noah within the context of Scripture. Now, there's some interesting things in the text that, that we have to struggle with a little bit. Uh, some other passages of Scripture help us. For instance, in Jude chapter 6, we read, and the angels who did not stay within their position of authority but left their proper dwelling. They rebelled and abandoned. They were fallen angels. He has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. How does that factor into our interpretation of what Peter's teaching us in this particular text? Now, one, one of the views that uh, has been held historically, at least in Jewish tradition, and in many ways in, in Christianity through the ages, again, one of many of these positions, is what's being spoken of in Genesis chapter 6 is that these fallen angels, these fallen angelic spirits, and that's a really important point, they were, they were spirits, they didn't possess a body like ours, they're not like human beings, but uh, they were fallen, they rebelled against God, they were cast into a restricted area. I believe perhaps that restriction is they had no longer any access to God the Father. They were cast out of heaven because of their rebellion. And the text seems to indicate that they took as wives the daughters the sons of God. So, so what is he talking about? Well, it, it seems and appears that one of the feasible explanations is that these fallen angels, these spirit beings, these demons, if you would, took up residence, they, they embodied, they possessed real men in a real world that was spiraling into deeper and deeper sin. And because of this demonic uh, possession and oppression, bore children that were steeped in that same kind of evil that pursued those evil ways. When it talks about the Nephilim, it talks about the falling ones, those who had fallen away, and, and the text seems to indicate that they fell away from God, and God, because of the evil created by these fallen angels who possessed men, and, and, and then these possessed men married the daughters of God and, and bore children, this evil was manifest in this race of giants according to the text. They were wicked. And the wickedness, verse 5, the earth was great. And that every intention of the thoughts of the heart was only evil continually. There had to be a remedy for this. Only a holy God could not tolerate this. He had to respond to the rampant evil in the world back then. Some would take this text and and look at it allegorically and say, well, the the daughters of of, of God and the righteous were of the line of Seth, and and when he's talking about those who had fallen away, he's talking about the line of, of, of Cain. That's a that's a bigger hurdle to get over, although all of these views have, have things that challenge us in that interpretation. I happen to think that, that these fallen angels in the possession of men, they couldn't have natural relations with, with God-created females because they were spirit beings. They had to possess or be, be in, involved with the men of that time, possessing them and then bearing these kind of children. 
The point of the text is, regardless of who we might identify as a Nephilim or these, these evil giants, they were wicked, 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 and every intention of their thoughts in their heart was only evil continually. There was no redeeming quality whatsoever in these beings. The Lord repented, and it grieved him. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heaven. I'm sorry that I made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Now that verse 8 is a really important verse in interpreting what Peter has to say in 1 Peter chapter 3. So he's juxtaposing these very deeply evil men against those other men who were righteous and found favor in the eyes of the Lord. You are either evil and wicked, or you are righteous in your unrighteousness only through Jesus Christ. I don't think, even in the Christian church, we have a very good grasp on the evil of man's heart and the consequence of sin. We've categorized sin as a mistake or something cultural or I I fell asleep and in a moment of weakness. No, sin is an amazing offense against a holy and righteous God. And the truth is there's no middle ground. You are either dead in your trespasses and sin and, and, and wicked without hope, or you are alive unto God through Jesus Christ. But it only comes, verse 18, by the righteous one paying for our sins, those who are unrighteous, and imputing His righteousness to us. The whole point of the passage is to point us to Christ. The whole point of the passage is to point us to the only hope that we have, and that is in God intervening at a time in history where He provides a sense of hope. And He does that in Genesis by destroying evil and rescuing righteous, rescuing righteous through, of course, the waters of the flood. R.C. Sproul would take this passage of Scripture in 1 Peter chapter 3, and he would interpret a little bit different, and his is the minority-minority view. Very few people hold this view, but, but it does make some good sense. R.C. Sproul would say that he is proclaiming to captive spirits, and everyone is captive outside of Christ to sin. You follow me? So, he's looking at this more in an allegoric kind of way. All mankind are are, are captive. All of them are spirits in prison based on their sinfulness. All do not obey, and yet God in His patience rescues those who He chooses to rescue. Well, there's a bit of sense to that as well. But again, all of these views kind of need to be wrestled together. But what is the bigger picture? The bigger picture is neither is there salvation in any other. It is only in Jesus Christ. So now he'll paint a picture of salvation only in Christ by using the illustration of the flood in Genesis chapter 6 and onward where, where Peter says, God was patient in the days of Noah. Now, if you continue reading in the book of Genesis, and we're back in Peter now, but if you continued reading, we would see that God's patience lasted 120 years as He waited patiently for the ark to be built. As Noah continued to proclaim the hope of the ark and the promise of God to a generation who would not believe to a generation who didn't want to hear the truth, to a generation that was captive to their sinfulness. For 120 years, Noah, as he builds the ark, continues to proclaim that the only way to be spared of God's judgment for the sinfulness of man is to come into this ark, only a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Only a few. Everything else utterly destroyed. It grieves me when I hear people talk about a Christian nation or all of these Christians. One is Christian not by culture, not by church attendance, not by right theology but Christian only by Jesus Christ alone, the righteous for the unrighteous. 
There's a lot of people who walk around today thinking they're okay because they know the truth, at least a semblance of the truth of the gospel, but they don't know the person on the cross. They're still in their sins, and yet they, they convince themselves, I'd be on a boat, I'd, I'd do that. Simple glance in the mirror as we recognize our propensity to sin would remind us that we're in deep trouble if it weren't for Jesus Christ. The text is pointing us again back to His Son, back to the Savior, back to Jesus. In the worst of times, Christ is the answer. But only eight persons were brought safely through water. God used the water to rescue Noah and his wife, and his sons. And their wives. But God used that same water to destroy everybody else. So the power couldn't have been in the water. For the water to one man was destruction, and the water to another man was rescue. What is Peter saying? What is Peter talking about? What is he trying to say here? He is simply saying, God will rescue a few. He will provide a way. He will do something in the midst of wickedness to set aside people for himself. And what is Peter saying constantly in this text to God's people who are going through the worst of persecution? I've got you. The floodwaters are coming, but I have made a way, and it is the righteous for the unrighteous. You see how he takes us right back to Christ? God made a promise that He'd never again destroy the world by a flood. So, He's not rescuing through waters anymore. He is rescuing through His Son in Christ alone, who suffered once for sin, the righteous for the unrighteous. Well, then He goes on and and deals with another topic that seems to be a topic of confusion in Christianity historically. In other words, verse 21, baptism which corresponds to this, baptism, which corresponds to what? The waters of the flood that brought rescue to, to Noah and his wife and his sons and, and his daughters-in-law. The baptism, which corresponds to this, to, to this picture uh, painted in the days of Noah, Genesis chapter 6, now saves you. So, is he saying that baptism is what saves you? Is he saying that baptism rescues you? Is he saying that if you are baptized as an infant, if you are baptized as an adult, you're okay? That's not what he's saying. Some would tell you that's what he's saying. But we know that's not the case because look what he says next. Baptism, which corresponds to this, that, that, that's a picture of what, of what God is doing, now saves you not as a removal of dirt from the body. If it was baptism alone that rescued you, to go under the water and to come out of the water clean would be sufficient, but that's not sufficient. Baptism cannot remove the dirt and the filth of the body, but baptism, listen to what he says, is an appeal to God for a good conscience. An appeal to God for a good conscience. In other words, it is out of that good conscience that baptism comes. It is out of that good conscience that you are rescued and saved, and and then baptism pictures that. What are you rescued by? What is it that saves you? Well, he says it very clearly in verse 21. It's not baptism. What are you rescued by? The resurrection of Jesus Christ. And what does Paul say in 1 Corinthians 15? Without the resurrection, there's no hope. There is no faith. There's no promise. You are still dead in your Sins. He's not telling us that baptism rescues anybody. He's saying baptism was a result of a rescue that already took place through the resurrection of Jesus Christ and through a good conscience. What is that good conscience? It is a cleansed conscience. And how does one cleanse their conscience if indeed they are totally depraved and their acts and deeds are evil? Well, that's simple. It's a message of the gospel. How do you cleanse your conscience? You confess your sin you repent of that sin, you accept the forgiveness of that sin through Christ alone, achieved for you through His death and His burial and His resurrection. And then you proclaim that cleansed good conscience through the water of baptism. Baptism. 
The only baptism that saves is a baptism that doesn't include water. It is the baptism of the Holy Spirit where He takes you from your dead condition and He makes you alive in Jesus Christ and He places you in His body. You know what happens when you get baptized and have not embraced the gospel? You get wet. He's not saying baptismal regeneration. He's saying the answer is Christ alone. It's always been Christ alone. It has always been in God making a way when there seemed to be no way. Why? Because only a holy God. Only a good God cares enough for His creation to reach into them and to rescue them with the very blood of His Son, the righteous one for the unrighteous one. Baptism is not a removal of dirt from the body. Confession and repentance and forgiveness in Christ alone is only sufficient for that removal of the filth of the flesh and being clothed in the righteousness of Christ. It is only achieved and found the good conscience that comes from the belief in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Well, why couldn't He have just made this clearer? Well, for whatever reason, the Holy Spirit wanted us to wrestle through this a little bit. I, I, I don't know. But don't get so caught up in all of the particulars, and too many of you do that, that you miss what Peter is shouting. <laughs> you know what your hope is? A righteous died for the unrighteous. You want to know what your hope is? A sinless Messiah died for the sins of all mankind. He was put to death. He bore your penalty on the cross of Calvary. You want to know what the answer is? Jesus proclaiming victory over all things, even fallen angels, to proclaim it's finished, it's done. Neither is there salvation in any other. You know what rescues you? It is not the waters of the flood but the God who caused the waters to come and the God who provided His Son for us as a removal of dirt from the body out of a good conscience through confession and repentance, forgiveness and restoration. And it is this same Jesus, verse 22, who has gone into heaven and He is at the right hand of God with angels and authorities and powers having been subjected to Him. There is a huge clue the most important thing that Peter is trying to communicate. Salvation in Christ alone. In the Lordship of our Savior. So, let me connect the dots. He says in chapter 2, be subject to the authorities who are over you. He says in chapter 2, why slaves submit to your, to your owners. In the workplace, submit to those who have the authority over you. He talks about in the home. Husbands, love your wives. Wives, respect your husbands. Submit to your own husbands as unto the Lord. He talks about it in the body of Christ. We submit to each other, not because we're good and gracious people. We submit to each other because we understand that it's but for the grace of God that any of us are here. Jesus is King, not, not us. Jesus is King. And in the midst of all of this submission, there's this cacophony of voices that says, we can't. How, how, how would God, why would He even ask such a thing of us? And here's what He says. You can submit to them because all of them have submitted to me. Fallen angels, the evil ones, everyone in this world, He is announcing His supremacy. Perhaps that's the exact message that He preached to those who are in, in some kind of restriction. Jesus Christ is now at the right hand of God, and angels and authorities and powers, all of these demonic forces are all subject to Him. Now, do you understand who the enemy is? Jesus said, I've taken care of the enemy. I'm just asking you for the sake of order. And my patience in Noah's day of 120 years, how long it will be in the age of the church, I don't know. Be patient. God has made a plan. He will rescue you. And none of these other powers or authorities, those who are succumbed by this evil intent of their heart day in and day, none of them can touch you because I've made my enemies my footstool. They are all submissive 
to me. You say, well, why does God let this happen in this world today? It's impatience that he exercised. For the disbelief in the days of Noah he is exercising today. But there's coming a day when Christ stops speaking. There's coming a day when he says enough is enough. At the sound of the trumpet, the dead in Christ will rise, and we which are alive are caught up together, so shall we ever be with the Lord. Wrath, just like a flood, will be poured out on all mankind. And the inevitable result of the promise of God will be finally realized. It's over. You know, Sid has rightful place of king over all of the nations. And even though it hasn't happened yet, the effects of it have happened. And God has saved some through the water. God has saved some through his grace, but God has saved no one outside of his son, Jesus Christ, for neither is there salvation in any. What was Peter saying? Stop being so distracted around you. Just live your life soberly and righteous. Be submissive because I've overcome the world and everybody's submissive to me. And I made you a promise. I'll keep my promise. The whole text is dealing with submission, right? The whole text is pointing us back to Christ. You know what the problem in the church is today? A lack of lordship, a lack of understanding that it is in Christ alone. We got it down pat for salvation, but I'm talking about every single day of your life. Stop worrying about other stuff. The righteous has made you righteous in the midst of your unrighteousness, and he is king and kings and lord of lords, and everything's going to be Okay, what a glorious text. Therefore, Paul exclaims in Ephesians chapter 1, for this reason, because I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, to not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of Him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you might know what is the hope to which He has called you. What are the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe? And that power is unlimited. Everything else is subject to that power. According to the working of a great might that He worked in Christ, when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at the right hand in heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fulfills all in all. That's exactly what Peter writes at the end of this chapter. This Christ has gone into heaven is seated at the right hand of God, and angels and authorities and powers and absolutely every other thing has been subjected and made submissive to Him for the glory of God and His church throughout generations forever and forever. Amen. So answer me, what can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus? Is it the fallen angels? No, He has submission over them. Is it your sinful tendency? No, he has submission over that, and if you make him Lord, he can grant you victory. It is the political powers of the day or that wicked, evil boss of yours? No, no, no. It is the bliss of marriage and raising children? No, no, no. The only sustaining power in an evil world is Christ alone, and he has made all of his enemies his footstool. He has set the crooked straight. He is King of kings and Lord of lords, and in my opinion, He is soon to announce Himself in that glorious position. And every promise that He made, both to Israel and to the church, will be fulfilled as we see Him and become like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. In another place, Paul writes, being found in human form, He humbled Himself in becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him a name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven 
and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's exactly what he announced to these captives wherever they were. The battle is over. So Peter is saying, hey, listen, it's bad, but it's going to get worse. But don't ever forget that your hope is in Christ and everything on heaven and earth is subject to that Christ. Hang on. Keep the faith. Focus on your Savior. And in the midst of dire persecution, Cormdeo, live before the face of God with the confidence that everything's going to be okay. I think that's what Peter's trying to say at the end of the chapter. <laughs> I've said all of this because I've rooted my life in this. And if God is for us, who can be against us? Not a single thing, not a single person, not a single entity. Oh, we wrestle not against flesh and blood. We are in the midst of a spiritual battle, but you know what? I read the end of the book. We win. We win. And it's because our glorious Savior, that's what Peter's trying to communicate. Hang on. A better day is coming. Everything's going to be okay. That's the kind of message the world needs to hear today. Sometimes that's the message that we need to hear as well. Father, encourage us, bless us, and challenge us. Because there's work to be done in our lives. But today we acknowledge that that work is being done through a Savior who submits all things unto Himself. If life If life gets hard, give us peace and hope and a promise. And may it always be in Christ alone. As we wait for the day that He makes all things new. And He patiently awaits as His church proclaims the message of the gospel, the hope to a lost and dying world unashamedly. May you bless that message. May you bless us with people who now have the eyes to see and the ears to hear. As we gather in this place, may we be reminded every single Sunday it's all about Jesus. For we pray these things in His name. Amen.